Book two, part three of the Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia by Philip Sidney. Book two, part three. It were the part of a very idle orator to set forth the numbers of well-devised honours done unto them, but as high honour is not only gotten and borne by pain and danger, but must be nursed by the like, or else vanisheth as soon as it appears to the world. So the natural hunger thereof, which was in Pyrocles, suffered him not to account a resting seat of that which either riseth or falleth, but still to make one occasion beget another, whereby his doings might send his praise to others' mouths, to rebound again true contentment to his spirit and therefore, having well established those kingdoms under good governors, and rid them by their valour of such giants and monsters, as before time armies were not able to subdue, they determined, in unknown order, to see more of the world, and to employ those gifts esteemed rare in them to the good of mankind. And therefore, with themselves, understanding that the king Euarchus was past all the cumber of his wars, go privately to seek exercises of their virtue, thinking it not so worthy to be brought to heroical effects by fortune or necessity like ulysses and aeneas as by one's own choice and working and so when they away from very unwilling people to leave them making time haste itself to be a circumstance of their honour and one place witness to another of the truth of their doings for scarcely were they out of the confines of pontus but that as they rid alone armed for alone they went one serving the other they met an adventure which though not so notable for any great effect they performed yet worthy to be remembered for the unused examples therein, as well of true natural goodness as of wretched ungratefulness. And now, being in the country of Galatia, and in midwinter, the princes were condemned by the pride of the wind which blew into their faces, to some shrouding-place, a hollow rock, and under that rude canopy they found an aged man, and a young scarcely come to the age of man, the old man blind, the young man leading him, and their doleful speeches were such as moved the princes to ask the younger who they were. Sirs, answered he, with a good grace, your presence promiseth that cruelty shall not overrun hate and if it did in truth our state is sunk below the degree of fear this old man whom i lead was lately rightful prince of this country of paphlagonia by the hard-hearted ungratefulness of a son of his deprived not only of his kingdom whereof no foreign forces were ever able to spoil him but of his sight the riches which nature grants to the poorest creatures whereby and by other his unnatural dealings he hath been driven to such grief as even now he would have had me to have led him to the top of this rock thence to cast himself headlong to death and so would have made me who received my life of him to be the worker of his destruction but noble gentlemen said he if either of you have a father and feel what dutiful affection is engrafted in a son's heart let me entreat you to convey this afflicted prince to some place of rest and security amongst your worthy acts it shall be none of the least that a king of such might and fame and so unjustly oppressed is in any sort by you relieved but before they could make him answer his father began to speak ah my son said he how evil an historian are you that leave out the chief knot of all the discourse my wickedness my wickedness and if thou doest it to spare my ears the only sense now left me proper for knowledge assure thyself thou dost mistake me and i take witness of that sun which you see with that he cast up his blind eyes as if he would hunt for light and wish myself in worse case than i do wish myself which is as evil as may be if i speak untruly that nothing is so welcome to my thoughts as the publishing of my shame therefore know you gentlemen to whom from my heart i wish that it may not prove some ominous foretoken of misfortune to have met with such a miser as i am that whatsoever my son o oh god that truth binds me to reproach him with the name of my son hath said is true but besides those truths this also is true that having had in lawful marriage of a mother fit to bear royal children this son such a one as partly you see and better shall know by my short declaration 
and so enjoyed the expectations in the world of him, till he was grown to justify their expectations, so as I needed envy no farther for the chief comfort of mortality, to leave another oneself after me, I was carried by a bastard son of mine, if at least I be bound to believe the words of that base woman my concubine, his mother, first to mislike, then to hate, lastly to destroy, or to do my best to destroy, this son, I think you think, undeserving destruction. What way she used to bring me to it, if I should tell you, I should tediously trouble you with as much poisonous hypocrisy, desperate fraud, smooth malice, hidden ambition, and smiling envy, as in any living person could be harboured, but I list it not, no remembrance of naughtiness delights me but mine own, and methinks the accusing his traps might in some manner excuse my fault, which certainly I loathe to do. But the conclusion is that I gave order to some servants of mine, whom I thought as apt for such charities, as myself, to lead him out into a forest, and there to kill him. But those thieves, better natured to my son than myself, spared his life, letting him go to learn to live poorly, which he did, giving himself to be a private soldier, in a country hereby. But as he was ready to be greatly advanced for some noble pieces of service which he did, he heard news of me, who, drunk in my affection to that unlawful and unnatural son of mine, suffered myself so to be governed by him, that all favours and punishments passed by him, all offices and places of importance distributed to his favourites, so that, ere I was aware, I had left myself nothing but the name of a king, which he shortly weary of too, with many indignities, if anything may be called an indignity which was laid upon me, threw me out of my sea, and put out my eyes, and then, proud in his tyranny, let me go, neither imprisoning nor killing me, but rather delighting to make me feel misery, misery indeed, if ever there were any, full of wretchedness, fuller of disgrace, and fullest of guiltiness. And as he came to the crown by so unjust means, as unjustly he kept it, by force of stranger soldiers and citadels, the nests of tyranny and murderers of liberty, disarming all his own countrymen, that no man durst show himself a well-willer of mine. To say the truth, I think few of them being so, considering my cruel folly to my good son, and foolish kindness to my unkind bastard. But if there were any who felt pity of so great a fall, and had yet any sparks of unslain duty left in them towards me, yet durst they not show it, scarcely with giving me alms at their doors, which yet was the only sustenance of my distressed life, nobody daring to show so much charity, as to lend me a hand to guide my dark steps, till this son of mine, God knows, worthy of a more virtuous and more fortunate father, forgetting my abominable wrongs, not reckoning danger, and neglecting the present good way, he was doing himself good, came hither to do this kind office you see him perform towards me, to my unspeakable grief, not only because his kindness is a glass even to my blind eyes of my naughtiness, but that, above all griefs, it grieves me he should desperately adventure the loss of his well-deserving life for mine, that yet owe more to fortune for my deserts, as if he would carry mud in a chest of crystal. For well I know he that now reigneth, how much soever, and with good reason, he despiseth me, of all men despised, yet he will not let slip any advantage, to make away him whose just title, and noble by courage and goodness, may one day shake the seat of a never-secure tyranny and for this cause I craved of him to lead me to the top of this rock. Indeed, I must confess, with meaning to free him from so serpentine a companion as I am. But he, finding what I purposed, only therein since he was born, showed himself disobedient unto me. And now, gentlemen, you have the true story, which I pray you publish to the world, that my mischievous proceedings may be the glory of his filial piety, the only reward now left for so great a merit. And if it may be, let me obtain that of you which my son denies me, for never was there more pity in saving any than in ending me, both because therein my agony shall end, and so you shall preserve this excellent young man, who else wilfully follows his own ruin. The matter in itself lamentable, lamentably expressed by the old prince, which needed not to take to himself the gestures of pity, since his face could not put off the marks thereof, greatly moved the two princes to compassion, which could not stay in such hearts as theirs without seeking remedy. 
A by and by Plexertus, so was the bastard called, came thither with forty horse, of purpose to murder his brother, yet notwithstanding help given to the usurper by Tidius and Telenor, two brothers of the noblest house of that country, and forty or fifty of their suite, Pyrocles and Musidorus and the king of Pontus, who had come unlooked for to their succour, so reduced the usurper, that they left him but that strong place wherein he was, in which season too the blind king, his heart broken with affliction, having in the chief city of his realm placed the crown upon his son Leonatus' head, even in a moment, as it should seem, died. Plexertus, reduced to famine, came, cunningly dissembling, barefooted, and with a rope about his neck, to Leonatus, seeming to desire nothing but death, as, ashamed to live, he begged the life in refusing it. In the noble breast of Leonatus he begat not only pity, but pardon, and the ministers of his cruelty being punished, he was forgiven. In such sort the princes left these reconciled brothers, Plexertus in all his behaviour, carrying him in far lower degree of service than the ever-noble nature of Leonatus would suffer him, and taking likewise their leaves of their good friend the king of Pontus, who returned to enjoy some benefit, both of his wife and kingdom, they privately went thence, having only with them the two valiant brothers, who would needs accompany them through diverse places, they foredoing acts more dangerous, though less famous, because they were but private chivalries, till hearing of the fair and virtuous queen Irona of Lycia, besieged by the puissant king of Armenia, they bent themselves to her succour, both because the weaker, and weaker as being a lady, and partly because they heard the king of Armenia, had in his company three of the most famous men living for matters of arms that were known to be in the world, whereof one was the prince Plangus, whose name was sweetened by your breath, peerless lady, when the last day pleased you to mention him unto me. The other two were two great princes, though holding of him, Barzanes and Euardes, men of giant-like both hugeness and force, in which two especially the trust the king had of victory was reposed, and of them those brothers Tidius and Telenor, sufficient judges in warlike matters, spake so high commendations that the two princes had even a youthful longing to have some trial of their virtue, and therefore, as soon as they were entered into Lycia, they joined themselves with them, that faithfully served the poor queen, at that time besieged, and ere long animated in such sort their almost overthrown hearts, that they went by force to relieve the town, though they were deprived of a great part of their strength, by the parting of the two brothers, who were sent for in all haste to return to their old friend and master Plexertus, who, willingly hoodwinking themselves from seeing his faults, and binding themselves to believe what he said, often abused the virtue of courage, to defend his foul vice of injustice. But now they were sent for to advance a conquest he was about, while Pyrocles and Musidorus pursued the delivery of the queen Irona. I have heard, said Pamela, that part of the story of Plangus, when he passed through this country, therefore you may, if you list, pass over that war of Irona's quarrel, lest, if you speak too much of war matters, you should wake Mopsa, which might haply breed a great broil. He looked and saw that Mopsa indeed sate swallowing of sleep with open mouth, making such a noise withal, as nobody could lay the stealing of a nap to her charge. Whereupon, willing to use that occasion, I kneeled down, and with humble-heartedness and hearty earnestness printed in my graces. Alas, said I, divine lady, who have wrought such principles in me as to make a prince none of the basest, to think all principalities base, in respect of the sheep-hook which may hold him up in your sight, vouchsafe now at last to hear in direct words my humble suit, while this dragon sleeps that keeps the golden fruit. If in my desire I wish, or in my hopes aspire, or in my imagination feign to myself anything which may be the least spot to that heavenly virtue which shines in all your doings, I pray the eternal powers that the words I speak may be deadly poisons while they are in my mouth, and that all my hopes, all my desires, all my imaginations may only work their own confusion. But if love, love of you, love of your virtues, seek only that favour of you which becometh that gratefulness which cannot misbecome your excellency, oh, do not, he would have said further, but Pamela, calling aloud, Mopsa, she suddenly start up, 
staggering and rubbing her eyes ran first out of the door and then back to them before she knew how she went out or why she came in again till at length being fully come to her little self she asked pamela why she had called her for nothing said pamela but that you might hear some tales of your servants telling and therefore now said she dorus go on but as i who found no so good sacrifice as obedience was returning to the story of myself philoclea came in and by and by after her miso so as for that time they were fain to let dorus depart pamela and philoclea their sober dinner being come and gone resolved to beg zelmane's company and to go while the heat of the day lasted to bathe themselves as the arcadian nymphs often do in the river laden which of all the rivers of greece had the price for excellent pureness and sweetness insomuch as the very bathing in it was accounted exceeding healthful it ran upon so fine and delicate a ground as one could not easily judge whether the river did more wash the gravel or the gravel did purify the river the river not running forthright but almost continually winding as if the lower streams would return to their spring or that the river had a delight to play with itself the banks of either side the seeming arms of the loving earth that fain would embrace it and the river a wanton nymph which still would slip from it either side of the bank being fringed with most beautiful trees which resisted the sun's starts from overmuch piercing the natural coldness of the river zelmane whose passion was so great that she was obliged to lean against a tree as the raiments of these damsels fell off to receive the kisses of the ground retired while philoclea who blushing and withal smiling making shamefastness pleasant and pleasure shamefast tenderly moved her feet unwonted to feel the naked ground till the touch of the cold water made a pretty kind of shrugging come over her body like the twinkling of the fairest among the fixed stars but the river itself gave way unto her so that she was straight breast high which was the deepest that thereabout she could be and when cold laden had once fully embraced them himself was no more so cold to those ladies but as if his cold complexion had been heated with love so seemed he to play about every part he could touch zelmane in retirement taking up a lute with her panting heart dancing to the music gave utterance and invention to a song in honour of her mistress when coming to the latter end of it she saw a water spaniel come and fetch away one of philoclea's gloves whose fine proportion showed well what a dainty guest was wont there to be lodged it was a delight to zelmane to see that the dog was therewith delighted and so let him go a little way withal who quickly carried it out of sight among certain trees and bushes which were very close together but by and by he came again and amongst the raiment the dog lighted upon a little book of four or five leaves of paper and was bearing that away too but when zelmane not knowing what importance it might be of ran after the dog who going straight to those bushes she might see the dog deliver it to a gentleman who secretly lay there but she hastily coming in the gentleman rose up and with a courteous though sad countenance presented himself unto her zelmane's eyes straight willed her mind to mark him for she thought in herself she had never seen a man of a more goodly presence in whom strong making took not away delicacy nor beauty fierceness being indeed such a right man-like man as nature often erring yet shows she would fain make but when she had a while not without admiration viewed him she desired him to deliver back the glove and paper because they were the lady philoclea's telling him withal that she would not willingly let them know of his close lying in that prohibited place while they were bathing of themselves because she knew they would be mortally offended withal fair lady answered he the worst of the complaint is already past since i feel of my fault in myself the punishment but for these things i assure you it was my dog's wanton boldness not my presumption with that he gave her back the paper but for the glove said he since it is my lady philoclea's give me leave to keep it sith my heart cannot persuade itself to part from it and i pray you tell the lady lady indeed of all my desires that i will direct my life to honour this glove with serving her oh villain cried out zelmane maddened with finding an unlooked-for rival and that he would make her a messenger dispatch and deliver it or by the life of her that owes it i will make thy soul though too base a price pay for it and with that drew out her sword which amazon-like she ever wear about her 
The gentleman retired himself into an open place from among the bushes, and then drawing out his two, he offered to deliver it unto her, saying withal, God forbid I should use my sword against you, Sith, if I be not deceived, you are the same famous Amazon, that both defended my lady's just title of beauty against the valiant Philantus, and saved her life in killing the lion. Therefore I am rather to kiss your hands, with acknowledging myself bound to obey you. But this courtesy was worse than a bastinado to Zelmane, so that again, with rageful eyes, she bade him defend himself, for no less than his life should answer it. A hard case, said he, to teach my sword that lesson, which hath ever used to turn itself to a shield in a lady's presence. But Zelmane, hearkening to no more words, began with such witty fury to pursue him with blows and thrusts, that nature and virtue commanded the gentleman to look to his safety. Yet still courtesy that seemed incorporate in his heart would not be persuaded by danger to offer any offence, but only to stand upon the best defensive guard he could, sometimes going back, being content in that respect, to take on the figure of cowardice, sometime with strong and well-met wards, sometimes cunning avoidings of his body, and sometimes feigning some blows, which himself pulled back before they needed to be withstood. And so with play did he a good while fight against the fight of Zelmane, who more spited with that courtesy, that one that did nothing should be able to resist her, burned away with choler any motions which might grow out of her own sweet disposition, determining to kill him if he fought no better, and so, redoubling her blows, drave the stranger to no other shift than to ward and go back, at that time seeming the image of innocency against violence. But at length he found that, both in public and private respects, who stands only upon defence, stands upon no defence, for Zelmane seeming to strike at his head, and he going to ward it, with all step back, as he was accustomed. She stopped her blow in the air, and suddenly turning the point, ran full at his breast, so as he was driven with the pommel of his sword, having no other weapon of defence, to beat it down. But the thrust was so strong that he could not so wholly beat it away, but that it met with his thigh, through which it ran. But Zelmane, retiring her sword, and seeing his blood, victorious anger was conquered by the before-conquered pity, and heartily sorry, and even ashamed with herself. She was considering how little he had done who well she found could have done more, insomuch that she said, "'Truly, I am sorry for your hurt.' but yourself gave the cause, both in refusing to deliver the glove, and yet not fighting as I know you could have done. But, said she, because I perceive you disdain to fight with a woman, it may be, before a year come about, you shall meet with a near kinsman of mine, Pyrocles, prince of Macedon, and I give you my word, he, for me, shall maintain this quarrel against you. I would, answered Amphialus, I had many more such hurts to meet and know that worthy prince, whose virtue I love and admire, though my good destiny hath not been to see his person." But as they were so speaking, the young ladies came, to whom Mopsa, curious in anything but her own good behaviour, having followed and seen Zelmane fighting, had cried what she had seen. But they, careful of Zelmane, Pamela with a noble mind, and Philoclea with a loving, made quick work to come to save her. But already they found them in talk, and Zelmane careful of his wound. And when they saw him, they knew it was their cousin German, the famous Amphialus, whom, yet with a sweet grace bitterness, they blamed for breaking their father's commandment, especially while themselves were in such sort retired but he craved pardon, protesting unto them that he had only been to seek solitary places, by an extreme melancholy that had a good while possessed him, and guided to that place by his spaniel, where, while the dog hunted in the river, he had withdrawn himself to pacify with sleep his overwatch eyes, till a dream waked him. But Philoclea, that was even jealous of herself for Zelmane, would needs have her glove, and not without so mighty a laugh as that face could yield. As for Zelmane, when she knew it was Amphialus, "'Lord Amphialus,' said she, "'I have long desired to know you heretofore, I must confess, with more good will, but still with honouring your virtue, though I love not your person. And at this time, I pray you, let us take care of your wound, upon condition you shall hereafter promise that a more knightly combat shall be performed between us.' Amphialus answered in honourable sort, but with such excusing himself that more and more accused his love to Philoclea, and provoked more hate in Zelmane. But Mopsa had already called certain shepherds not far off, who knew and well observed their limits.' to come and help to carry away Amphialus, 
whose wound suffered him not without danger to strain it and so he leaving himself with them departed from them faster bleeding in his heart than at his wound he being gone the ladies with merry anger talking what naked simplicity their cousin had seen them returned to the lodgeward yet thinking it too early as long as they had any day to break off so pleasing a company with going to perform a cumbersome obedience zelmane invited them to the little arbour only reserved for her which they willingly did and there sitting pamela having a while made the lute in his language show how glad it was to be touched by her fingers zelmane delivered up the paper which amphialus had at first yielded unto her and seeing written upon the back side of it the complaint of clangus remembering what dorus had told her and desiring to know how much philoclea knew of her estate she took occasion in presenting of it to ask whether it were any secret or no no truly answered philoclea tis even an exercise of my father's writing a story of a gentleman whom he met as he lay under a tree while his servants gat fresh post-horses for him his pitiful motions and even groans moved my father to talk to him and he afterwards set down his story in such a form as you see the quick eyes of zelmane leave being given them to overrun the paper perceived it to be a kind of tuneful dialogue between a certain plangus and basilius relating the love torments of plangus and a fair queen named irona in this sad world where death is feared and life is held with pain like players placed to fill a filthy stage where change of thoughts one fool to other shows and all but jest save only sorrow's rage where the body is indeed but a shop of shame a book where blots be rife little else learned she from it and therefore thus she spake to philoclea most excellent lady one may be little wiser for this dialogue since it neither sets forth what plangus nor what erona is wherefore i would humbly crave to understand the particular discourse thereof with my sister's leave and help answered philoclea i will at once declare it of late there reigned a king in lydia who had for the blessing of his marriage this only daughter of his erona a princess worthy for her beauty as much praise as beauty may be praiseworthy this princess erona being nineteen years of age seeing the country of lydia so much devoted to cupid as that in every place his naked pictures and images were superstitiously adored either moved thereunto by the esteeming that it could be no godhead which could breed wickedness or the shamefast consideration of such nakedness procured so much of her father as utterly to pull down and deface all those statues and pictures which how terribly he punished for to that the lydians imputed quickly after appeared for she had not lived a year longer when she was stricken with most obstinate love to a young man but of mean parentage in her father's court named antiphilus so mean as that he was but the son of her nurse and by that means without other desert became known of her now so evil could she conceal her fire and so wilfully persevered she in it that her father offering her the marriage of the great tiridates king of armenia who desired her more than the joys of heaven she for antiphilus sake refused it many ways her father sought to withdraw her from it sometimes by persuasion sometimes by threatenings once hiding antiphilus and giving her to understand that he has fled the country lastly making a solemn execution to be done of another under the name of antiphilus whom he kept in prison but neither she liked persuasions nor feared threatenings nor changed for absence and when she thought him dead she sought all means as well by poison as knife to send her soul at least to be married in the eternal church with him this so brake the tender father's heart that leaving things as he found them he shortly after died then forthwith erona being seized of the crown and arming her will with authority sought to advance her affection to the holy title of matrimony but before she could accomplish all the solemnities she was overtaken with the war the king tiridates made upon her only for her person towards whom for her ruin love had kindled his cruel heart indeed cruel and tyrannous for being far too strong in the field he spared no man woman nor child but as though there could be found no foil to set forth the extremity of his love but extremity of hatred wrote as it were the sonnets of his love in the blood and tuned them in the cries of her subjects although his fair sister artaxia who would accompany him in the army sought all means to appease his fury 
till lastly he besieged irona in her best city vowing to win her or lose his life and now had he brought her to the point either of a woeful consent or a ruinous denial when they came thither following the course which virtue and fortune led them two excellent young princes pyrocles and musidorus the one prince of macedon the other of thessalia two princesses plangus said and he witnesses saying with sighs and tears the most accomplished both in body and mind that the sun ever looked upon while philoclea spake those words o sweet words sought zelmane to herself which are not only a praise to me but a praise to praise itself which out of that mouth is sure these two princes said philoclea as well to help the weaker especially being a lady as to save a greek people from being ruined by such whom we call in count barbarous gathering together such of the honestest lydians as would venture their lives to succour their princess giving order by a secret message they sent into the city that they should issue with all force at an appointed time they set upon tiridates camp with so well guided a fierceness that being of both sides assaulted he was like to be overthrown but that this plangus being general of tiridates horsemen especially aided by the two mighty men euardes and barzanes rescued the footmen even almost defeated but yet could not bar the princes with their succours both of men and victual to enter the city which when tiridates found would make the war long which length seemed to him worse than a languishing consumption he made a challenge of three princes in his retinue against those two princes and antiphilus and that thereupon the quarrel should be decided with compact that neither side should help his fellow but of whose side the more overcame with him the victory should remain antiphilus though erona chose rather to bide the brunt of war than venture him yet could not for shame refuse the offer especially since the two strangers that had no interest in it did willingly accept it besides that she saw it like enough that the people weary of the miseries of war would rather give him up if they saw him shrink than for his sake venture their ruin considering that the challengers were of far greater worthiness than himself so it was agreed upon and against pyrocles was euardes king of bithynia Barzanes of hyrcania against musidorus two men that thought the world scarce able to resist them and against antiphilus he placed the same plangus being his own cousin german and son to the king of iberia now so it fell out that musidorus slew Barzanes and pyrocles euardes which victory those princes esteemed above all that ever they had but of the other side plangus took antiphilus prisoner under which colour as if the matter had been equal though indeed it was not the greater part being overcome of his side tiridates continued his war and to bring irona to a compelled yielding sent her word that he would the third morrow after before the walls of the town strike off antiphilus head without his suit in that space were granted adding withal because he had heard of her desperate affection that if in the meantime she did herself any hurt what tortures could be devised should be laid upon antiphilus then lo if cupid be a god or that the tyranny of our own thought seem as a god unto us but whatsoever it was then it did set forth the miserableness of his effects she being drawn to two contraries by one cause for the love of him commanded her to yield to no other the love of him commanded her to preserve his life which not might well be cut but united it could not be so that love in her passions like a right make-bait whispered to both sides arguments of quarrel at length even the evening before the day appointed for his death the determination of yielding prevailed especially growing upon a message of antiphilus who with all the conjuring terms he could devise besought her to save his life upon any conditions but she had no sooner sent her messenger to tiridates but her mind changed and she went to the two young princes pyrocles and musidorus and falling down at their feet desired them to try some way for her deliverance showing herself resolved not to overlive antiphilus nor yield to tiridates they that knew not what she had done in private prepared that night accordingly and as sometimes it falls out 
that what his inconstancy seems cunning so did this change indeed stand in as good stead as a witty dissimulation for it made the king as reckless as them diligent so that in the dead time of the night the princess issued out of the town with whom she would needs go either to die herself or rescue antiphilus having no armour or weapon but affection and i cannot tell you how by what device though plangus at large described it the conclusion was the wonderful valour of the two princes so prevailed that antiphilus was succoured and the king slain plangus was then the chief man left in the camp and therefore seeing no other remedy conveyed in safety into her country artaxia now queen of armenia who being at home proclaimed great rewards to any private man and herself in marriage to any prince that would destroy pyrocles and musidorus but thus was antiphilus redeemed and though against the consent of all her nobility married to erona in which case the two greek princes being called away by another adventure left them but now methinks as i have read some poets who when they intend to tell some horrible matter they bid men shun the hearing of it so if i do not desire you to stop your ears from me yet may i well desire a breathing time before i am to tell the execrable treason of antiphilus that brought her to great misery and withal wish you all that from all mankind indeed you stop your ears o oh, most happy were we if we did set our loves one upon another and as she spake that word her cheeks in red letters writ more than her tongue did speak and therefore since i have named plangus i pray you sister said she help me with the rest for i have held the stage long enough and if it please you to make his fortune known as i have done erona's i will after take heart again to go on with his falsehood and so between us both my lady zelmane shall understand both the cause and parties of this lamentation End of book two, part three.